Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is William Peters, founder of the Shared Crossing Project, and global leader in shared death studies and end-of-life phenomenon. He has developed methods to facilitate the shared death experience and to assist experiencers in meaningfully integrating their experiences. His work is informed by his two NDEs and a variety of shared crossings. William, thank you for joining me on the podcast, and welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Really good to be here. William, if you don't mind... I know that your work is in SDEs or shared death experiences, but can you briefly give us a little overview of what happened to you in your NDEs? Certainly. Yeah. And I think it's important yeah, to start with the NDEs because I don't think I would have had the receptivity or openness to my shared death experiences uh, and certainly the subsequent clients that came to to visit with me about their SDEs if I had not had these kind of watershed uh, NDEs that really opened my mind up to a whole nother reality, really. So yeah, going back to my first uh, NDE, I was 17 years old, uh, living a, you know, real upper middle class life in the Bay Area of San Francisco, and went up to visit a friend to go skiing at uh, Lake Tahoe at uh, Squaw Valley. Uh, a real, you know, well-known ski area. And just skiing in the one morning, I decided that I would get some speed, head down the mountain, you know, at 17 years old, speed, more speed, the better. And I caught an edge. And that in a skiing terms, that means that my skis crossed up a little bit and catapulted me. It happened so quickly, but as it was happening, uh, I could see my my world slowing down. Everything went into slow motion. So I, you know, I was under a stress. I knew this was really uh, not good, and so things started to slow down. I was catapulted into the air. I was in the air for what seemed like uh, a long time, which was exhilarating, but also um, I knew it wasn't going to have a good ending. And when I hit the ground, I somersaulted. Uh, and crushed my spine. And, and at that moment, I, I felt a crunch and in my lumbar region, and everything went dark. It was almost like, if you remember the old uh, MASH TV episodes when they would get bombed, uh, and then the energy would kind of come out of the operating theater. It would go, and it would just go blank and dark. Well, that's what happened to me. Everything just went dark, except I had an observer there. There was a part of me that was observing this. I was completely uh, out of my body in any sensorial sense. I didn't feel any pain. I didn't feel anything. I had no 
no sensory anything in that moment. Then I, my next sensation was that of seeing. I was somehow, I was above my body for a moment still, but then I started moving away quickly and, and I accelerated. And this was, in a certain sense, strangely uh, familiar. Familiar only in the sense that, oh, okay, I'm here. Or this is what's happening. Not that I was like, this happens all the time, but it was not, it wasn't like, wow, what's happening here? It was more like I was, you know, thrilled in a certain way to be moving away from my body, enamored by beautiful Lake Tahoe, the Sierra Nevadas, then the San Francisco Bay Area, Colorado Rockies, continental North America. Then eventually I had a satellite view and it was all beautiful and enthralling and sublime feelings. Um, but like I said, uh, not unfamiliar. It was, in, in a, I think a correct expression of this would be, I'd been here before. Like somehow, somewhere, I knew this uh, perspective. As I was moving away, I noticed, oh, there's a review of my life going on. And I became, rather than being focused on the visual aspects of this, as I entered into these heavenly realms, I was, you know, kind of going back and forth between these snippets of my life that were quite profound. Uh, and most of them had to do with experiences in which I had, uh, they were usually pretty relational, like I'd done something to cause somebody harm, or uh, there was some sort of conflict. It was, it was kind of about unfinished business in my se first 17 years of my life. And I really got the ripple effect of our actions and my and my thoughts. Like I can remember one kind of seemingly silly example. I was like seven years old and I ran my bike into my neighbor friend on his big wheel. And he got, you know, he started crying and ran inside. He cried to his mother. Then his mother got upset and, you know, yelled at the husband. And the husband did the ripple effect of this kind of, I, I saw how, um, Actions matter, and this is karma. So it was a kind of profound teaching. Moving, but I was still moving away from uh, planet Earth. In fact, at this point, I couldn't even see planet Earth. But I was in this tunnel. Uh, it was kind of a milky, white, slinky tunnel that I could see through into the beautiful galaxy. But eventually, I saw this pinprick of light, and I got fascinated on that. And the light started to grow as I was moving closer to it. But then I realized I'm dying. And unlike most near-death experiencers, I did not want to die. I was like, oh, no, God, don't let me die. Do not let me die. I don't want to die. And I don't know where these insights came from, but they came with such emotional um, force, if you will, and, and I felt like, you know, I had a relationship with this light that I could actually call out to that light and make pleas that I thought might be heard. I went right into the light um, and, and the feelings were sublime and I was at peace and I was in awe of all that I was experiencing. And even my desires to return to my life were lessening. But then as I hung out in the light, I felt this pushback on me. And I started moving very slowly uh, away from that light. 
And I'm thinking, oh, I must be going back. And I had this sense of, oh, I'm going, I'm returning to my human life. And I said, um, thank you. Thank you, God. Now, I grew up Catholic. So this, uh, for me, this light was God. There was no, no doubt about that. And the, the light, or God, if you will, said, make something of your life. Now, I didn't hear that in any verbal, oral tonage. It was more, that's what I uh, telepathically received. And it was quite strong. It was actually created a bit of cognitive dissonance for me. Like, I don't, I don't, what does he really mean by that? So I've spent a good deal of my life kind of working with what does it mean to make meaning, uh, make something of your life, make meaning of your life. That's kind of how I've interpreted it. So I, I spun back to, uh, and I just say kind of spun back to my body. I, I was, I didn't know how I was going to get back, but then all of a sudden I realized, oh, wait a minute, there's a, a force that's pulling me back somewhere. So I just trusted it. And I ended up seeing, you know, played the whole tape in reverse, if you will. Eventually I saw planet earth. Then I saw, you know, continental us or North America. And I thought, wow, how am I going to get back into that body? How is it going to find myself here? And then once again, that was just my, some part of my mind doubting the, the, the authority, if you will, of what was happening here. And eventually I was back in my body and I landed thump into my body but I didn't have any feeling. Uh, and I said, God, don't let me be, be paralyzed. So I pleaded again with God. And, and then I felt feeling come over my body, which was quite a relief. And I said, I remember relaxing saying, thank you. Uh, but now as I, as I look back on that time, I wish I had asked that I, that I not have um, the physical effects of a severe spinal injury, which I've dealt with for now over four decades. So, so yeah, that, that was my first near death experience. Um, and I know that you, Jeff, and your audience are, are pretty astute and familiar with these. So that's fair to say this was a, a classic near death experience in terms of phenomena. Mm-hmm. You said that you grew up Catholic. Are you still Catholic today? That's a great question. And, and my first response is, I think there are a lot of um definitions about what it might be to be christian catholic or to be in any faith uh of that matter what i can say is that i've become much more spiritual um that experience and others that i've had have um opened me to the wide range seemingly infinite ways in which we can connect with and know god or the divine uh the holy the sacred um so i'm very open to different traditions in fact i have a buddhist practice that i put picked up in the in the late 90s i still still a core meditative spiritual practice for me i'm moved by um you know the teachings of avada vedanta because i really like that big um god that's in relationship with us and the and the search for the divine that is kind of the hallmark of you know various hindu traditions and practices uh, the Tao has always been moving, interesting to me. It's kind of like that unmoved mover that we get in relationship to. And it's a benevolent, wise force that we can in some ways know, but never really know. So I am, and I love indigenous practice. I lived in Central and South America and Peru and Guatemala. And, and I was very 
influenced by indigenous practices and their way of relating to the to the natural world and the cosmos. So um, the parts of Catholicism that really resonate with me today and still do is the mystical tradition. There is a deep mystical tradition within Catholicism and Christianity. And I love, you know, the cloud of a knowing is a great text that I go through and just go, wow, these, whoever wrote this got this. They really got the mystical nature of, of being a human being and what's possible in this human experience. Uh, there are others, you know, Meister Eckhart and Teresa of Avila and, you know, there's so many mystics, most of whom were kind of either excommunicated or on the outs with the mainstream church during their life, but later were brought back in as their experiences were reinterpreted and, and accepted uh, as, you know, divine experiences and worthy of all of us within Catholicism and Christianity to honor and learn from. So I'm happy yeah, so I'd say, you know, that's a long-winded answer to your question and response to it. But yeah, I think I'm that type of a Catholic. I'm a mystical Catholic. I guess you're also a student of the Jedi Order. <laughs> I think that would fit. Yeah. <laughs> Just by seeing, if no one noticed, the, jo the, the Yoda statue behind you. I love Yoda. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just, I love, what I love about Yoda is Yoda's um, personality in a certain way, the way that he holds his wisdom with such a humility and reverence and soft-spoken and uh but ever so powerful so i said you had two ndes is that correct yeah that is correct yes. what happened on your second one so about 13 years later uh i i contracted a rare uh blood disease and it's called idiopathic thromocytopenia. Mm -hmm. It is a low platelet condition, uh, a kind of hemophiliac uh, type situation where I was in danger of essentially bleeding out and I couldn't clot. So, and they don't know why this happened, which is also somewhat mysterious. I mean, I was on some, you know, a medication that could have contributed to it, but still my response was, really extreme. So what happened was I went into, well, I noticed that I had dots, what they call petechiae uh, on your, on my skin. And it was a little, my, my skin started splotching. In other words, it looked like there were, what was happening was blood vessels were bursting and you could see the red come up in pinpricks through on top of my skin. And I was like, wow, what's going on here? So I was getting dressed. I looked at my hands and realized what's going on here. And then all of a sudden I realized it was all over my body. And so um, I called uh, a trusted uh, friend who's in the medical profession. And he said, uh, you got to go to the ER right away. I go, okay. He, and what's interesting is had I not gone to the ER, I would not be here today. I mm -hmm. would have just sanguinated to death. So I went to the ER and within uh, minutes I was in a room with a fall alert on and I realized they were kind of concerned about me but they didn't really know what to do and and the next thing I remember this was in the afternoon on a Sunday or something and I woke up in the middle of the night on top of what is the ICU in Kaiser Hospital Oakland I was at the top of the you know, just below the ceiling 
And I think my first impressions were um, listening to nurses talk, kind of, once again, comfortable, at ease, a free-form consciousness moving about the top of the ICU. And I was going down the hallway. I saw janitors, you know, you know, working in the middle of the night, going into the closet and, uh, you know, just kind of observing. And then, and I was most interested in this one room, which is where I was located in a bed, but it really, I didn't even realize I was there. At least it didn't, I didn't really make the connection. Um, I should say physically there. I knew I was there uh, in terms of my consciousness. But when the nurses started talking about, they were talking about the different people. And, and I remember them saying, oh, the person in bed one, he's in a real bad way. He's 80 plus heart attack, not likely to make it through the night. Um, I thought, wow, that's, I went over and looked at him and I go, yeah, he's not looking good at all. And then the person in bed two was an elderly woman and she'd had some complications and she was in deep trouble. And then they go, then they go, there's this guy in bed three, uh, you know, 30 years old, really just, just been in here for, you know, sees a, one of our orthopedic doctors for some back stuff and some knee stuff, but really healthy guy. I don't know. Don't, we don't know what's going on with him. And I thought that's strange. So I went over to look at that guy and I looked at the guy and I realized, oh my gosh, that that's me. That's me in, in that bed. And I was like, whoa, what am I doing there? And then I said, wait a minute, I'm up here. And, and then there's this me down there. And in that moment, I had this huge epiphany, like, and it just sounds like this, whatever I identify as me or I or myself is not dependent on that physical body, which was under a great deal of distress in that bed in the ICU. But I didn't hang out there very long. I thought, okay, that's fine. And I started moving around again in the, you know, just enjoying my time up there. Um, it wasn't until the doctor came in and tapped on my hand and said, Mr. Peters, Mr. Peters. And I responded from above. I didn't respond to him. I was kind of brought, realized that he was talking to me. And he said, uh, I'm, he announced his name as a, as a specialist from UC San Francisco and that I'd been diagnosed with this idiopathic thromocytopenia, and he was an expert in that, and I was going to be in good hands, and I was on amino gamma goblin and prednisone, and, and he was trying to get my attention, because, and, and then he said, you know, can I ask you some questions? And, and I was thinking to myself, well, how can I respond? What if, if I can't, I, re I don't know how am I going to respond. What if I start, like, talking? I mean, I was all like, do I want to go back into that body? How would I get back into that body? And then all of a sudden, I just said one word, and I was like, yes. And when I said yes, I started filling in my body. I literally, like sand in an hourglass, I could feel energetically different parts of my body start to fill with vitality and aliveness and sensation. And But I was exhausted when I looked at him. Oh, that's the other thing. My view of the doctor changed from looking at his bald spot on his head and his white coat from behind or on top to now looking right into his eyes and realizing that he had spectacles on. And, and so I didn't have much of a conversation. I was too tired, uh, but he did do something very interesting. He walked away from the bed and then I noticed that he stopped 
And he kind of started, he turned around almost like, if you remember the old Columbo TV shows, he kind of puts his hand up behind him and did a 180 and head back to my bed. And I thought, oh God, well, now what's he going to say? And he said, well, Mr. Peters, I think you should know something. And I, I just gave a, an expression with my eyes. I was too tired to speak. I kind of, you know, got my eyes open and he said, most people would have died with the low level of platelets that you have. And he said, so I just thought you'd want to know that. And I kind of said, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> but I didn't make much of it. I uh, didn't make much of it, but it was something I remember. So those are my, yeah, those are my first two um, NDEs, Jeff. During your second one, did you have any recollection of the first one and thought, oh, I'm here again, or I'm out of my body again? Boy, let me think of that. Um no, I don't have any recollection of the first NDE specifically, but what I do have, I think, is a sense of comfort. I was not, I was not shocked or weirded out by that experience. I was there and it was like, oh, here I am again. So, but I think that may have to do with something else conjecture and that is that i think all of us as human beings um but i'll say speak for myself but i do think this applies to many of us maybe not all as many of us um can access past experiences of our soul spirit consciousness when we're out of a body so you know these are pretty state specific um experiences so I find that when I'm in that out-of-body experience, my response is, oh, here I am again. And it may not even be, oh, here I am again. It may just be that I'm there. There's no time. It's not like, it's just like, oh, you know, like I'm just, that space of being out of a human body is probably, a, at least for me, I know when I get into it, because I haven't had them as shared death experiences as well, that I'm there again. And it's natural for me. So I don't even, I don't even have an experience oftentimes of saying in my own mind, oh, I'm having an out-of-body experience. Like in other words, the context of being a human being or having a human life can be absent. In other words, this reality of being out of body can be, seems to be an existence of its own that may be going on all the time. I tap into it. I don't know. This is the notion of parallel universes and things like that. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, I don't think so. After either one of your NDEs, did you notice any cognitive changes that could be considered psychic? Mm, good question. And it's actually a research question for us because that we do hear a lot of our interviewees in our research project, um, uh, they they say that they've become more spiritual and less religious, and they'll talk about certain intuitive capacities or the developed or psychic abilities, as you said. Um, in my case, I would say that, yes, I don't know what my life was intuitively, psychically before I was 17. I don't think I was living in that aspect of myself as, as a young person at that point, I will say as a result of this experience, I think as a result of this experience, I have 
de continue to develop uh, a, a great intuitive ability. Yeah, definitely people who know me would say psychic ability for sure. Um, and, you know, I'm the type of person that if somebody's dying, I will sense them um, and sometimes be visited by them or somehow meet them somewhere. This doesn't happen all the time, but I tend to have that, um, you know, gift or capacity that I never chose. I don't, I mean, I've never tried to develop that. Um, that's not to say that I, I meditate a lot. And I think that meditating cultivates this, um, you know, this development of an observing self that is less tethered to a physical body, so to speak. So I think there's more latitude to experience other, you know, states of being, if you will, dimensions of consciousness. Are you aware of the medical condition called acquired savant syndrome? You know, why don't you explain it to me? I think it's going to come back to me if you do, because I think I, I don't want to go down a path, but go ahead, ex ex explain it to me. Well, I'll, I'm not a neurologist, but yeah. when you have an impact to your nervous system, sometimes um, people will have this acquired savant syndrome where you can have amazing ability in mathematics, like you see in the movie Rain Man, where the guy spills a box of toothpicks and he says, oh, that's 253. Or you may have some ability in music. I've had so many near-death experiencers say that they've had these cognitive changes that I felt like it's kind of another subsection of this acquired savant syndrome having these psychic-like abilities. Yeah, I, I think you're on to something there. Um, and I think that's in the literature too. Uh, I can't say for sure, but I have a recollection of uh, one of our great NDE researchers, Bruce Grayson. He's actually pretty interested in terminal lucidity um, as well. Well, then now it's called uh, a form of uh, terminal lucidity sits under a larger umbrella of paradoxical lucidity. And that goes at what you're talking about is some sort of trauma that manifests or harvests uh, an extraordinary cognitive ability or even psychic ability. Um, you know, and here's something interesting about that. Let me answer your question first there, Jeff. Sure. Yes, for sure. I have seen, I've seen that in my own clinical practice. I'll give you a great example of this. A woman uh, who, you know, came to me, she got in a severe car accident and she had a spiritual experience. And honestly, I can't remember if she had an NDE of sorts, but I think she did. Now that I'm remembering it, yeah, she actually was told she was going to go back to her human life. So yes. Um, and, and that's, yeah, now I'm remembering it. She said she'd go back to her human life and she realized she was, had a serious accident. And she said, but I need to, I need to be able to take care of my family. Um, and the, and God, the source said to her, I will give you a gift that you'll be able to support yourself with. And she goes, okay, well, she comes back and all of a sudden she's having financial difficulties and she just starts praying and, and, and she just hears this word paint, paint. She starts painting and she starts painting masterpieces. And, and to her profession ended up being um, 
kind of, she could do pretty much anything. Just like point, she could do it. So she became a person uh, who just could paint anything. And she could take a, a masterpiece and paint it. And she did all these, you know, so anyway, she became a commissioned painter. Um, so I think that points to your, uh, that example, because you've got, you've got trauma there happening in a car accident. And she had a brain injury and she wasn't supposed to survive. She had an NDE, uh, as I've defined. And, and I can tell you that like over the, you know, decades of doing my work here, I've had many NDE experiencers uh, who, and even people who have had extreme trauma will come back and say, you know, it's funny, uh, you think I might think I'm crazy, but since that accident or since that experience, I've had this ability to, uh, a lot of times I hear precognition. <laughs> That's a very common one uh, that I just know things that are going to happen in advance. Um, and and so, yes, there is something about this. And now going circling back to um, Bruce Grayson and his team, because uh, they did a white paper on paradoxical lucidity, they found very interesting um, findings. And that is persons with um, savant syndrome or uh, um, autism, a severe autism, they would get high fevers and they would become more normal. Hmm. So they, they literally had, they, so, so what you see here is that there's this some sort of trauma to the system that actually is regulating a lot of these, um, you know, these, these illnesses or even, you know, working with psychic abilities. So it, there's a lot going on there. Um, and it is, a, it is a fascinating field. I think there's even some research that points to even, you know, severe physical maladies that can be healed by certain traumas and i think the one they use the most is uh they studied is the high fever that can that can not so much doesn't heal or cure because the fever goes back down and the and the pathology if you will returns but it is an interesting way to look at uh what happens when our body gets under stress how does it regulate mm -hmm. it sounds like that you gain the ability to sense when people are close to death or dying. Is that what got you into shared death experiences? Yeah, good. Yeah, let me just kind of walk through this because after my second NDE, I should say that in my, well, okay, here's the other thing. I lived and worked in Central and South America in the late 80s, which was right after my first uh, NDE. And well, in that time, there were civil wars going on in the countries that I was working in, which was Guatemala and later Peru. And so famine, death and dying, you know, was just all around us. And I remember kind of being drawn into an altered state when I was with people who were um, ill or close to death. And I was fascinated by it. Uh, it was it was very inviting. And I didn't know what to do with, about it. I didn't even really talk about it. Because at this point, I was working with the Jesuit International Volunteers, a liberal arm of the Catholic Church, we're doing refugee work in, in, in distressed areas. And so, you know, I did have one experience where somebody was run over, uh, unfortunately, by a it looked like they were run over by a vehicle and I ran out to be with them. Uh, it was at night 
there were very few cars on the road and this person was on the ground and I was started assisting them, you know, doing the, uh, checking their pulse, eventually did CPR. And as I was doing that, I felt all these presences come up around me, uh, above me. And I kept feeling this pull upwards, like, what is this? Like, and then I, as I kind of was doing the physically trying to help this uh, individual, uh, I had these kind of the sense of communication from them that was saying, affirming, you're doing the right thing. It wasn't like I didn't hear that. It was just like this sense of, you know, my world was very um, tunnel vision at this point. I was really focused on this guy trying to save, help him and well, save him. Yeah. Because he was under a great deal of stress. And, and, but I was also drawn up into this other world. And this would be a shared death experience in the sense that this individual I was working with would eventually die in the coming days. Um, but I was, you know, I was in some ways witnessing or accompanying or having contact with what appeared to be his spirit guides or some benevolent loving force that was there at this great time of stress for him. Now, I, you know, I, this is a, his experience would actually be up for discussion of whether it was an SDE. I would say it would. I would say this is the very beginning stages of an SDE where the spirit clan um, and comes down, the the guides and the elevated beings who, uh, I, in my research, I've I call this this group or these entities the conductor. These are this is the force that. Uh, manages the transition of a human soul spirit consciousness from a human body into an afterlife. And, uh, and I, I felt like I was in contact with them um, and they felt very much in control. Uh, they were very much at peace. They were thanking me. I had a relationship with them, but they weren't particularly interested in me. I could tell they were there for him. Uh, so, so, um, so there's an interest in death that began for sure. And I, I would think that there's a, a gift and, and my own way of thinking of this, because I had had the near death experience just a few years before, I think this, I was familiar with through trauma, uh, through a traumatic incident, I was familiar with this landscape, this geography, this sacred, common geography, shared geography, if you will, that that all human beings will eventually travel through as they leave their human body and go into the next realm of existence. So I'm comfortable there um, and probably more receptive to it and maybe grooved in a certain way. Um, since, since most of us, I think as human beings have natural boundaries that are harder, more constraining. Um, I think those of us who have NDEs have blown out those boundaries in a certain way. We're more porous our consciousness more naturally um, and more easily uh, can go out of our the confines of a human brain body, if you will. So I had that experience. And then after my second um, NDE, I, I had family members that uh, were dying and was with them. And I noticed uh, conversations they were having uh, as they were moments before, you know, before they were dying, days before they were dying, that seemed to be 
conversations with other beings and I could feel those beings. So I was like, whoa, there's something on here. There's a thickness in the room that let me know that this room had other presences there and I could sense them. And I even, you know, charted, took notes on conversations that I was hearing my, you know, paternal grandmother having with her, um, you know, deceased friends uh, and perhaps relatives that I didn't know, but I took the notes down and took the name, the names, and she was 93, took them to my, the elder in our family, my uncle, and he would said, oh my gosh, these are names of people in her life from, you know, 30, 40, even 50 years before. And, 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 and so he said, you got the names down, right. And you got the conflict down because she was kind of working some things out. So I got interested in this and that's how I got into Zen hospice work. Um, I was training as a psychotherapist and I, joined Zen Hospice, you know, now almost uh, 25 years ago. And because I was fascinated by what happens around death and dying. And in Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco, very forward thinking, uh, progressive uh, hospice. And my job as a volunteer, I wasn't working in a you know paid position. I was a volunteer, which was ideal because my job was to sit at bedsides and be present and be affirming and help family members with whatever they had or the dying had needed someone to talk to or had questions just to be a loving, affirming presence. No theology, no cosmology, no, none of that. Just be present. Well, while I was there, you know, early in my work there on an afternoon, I was reading this, uh, the Jack London's call of the wild to Ron, who was, uh, close to death. And I popped out of my body. I mean, I just popped out of my body and I could see my body in the chair down below. I was still reading and I could see Ron, you know, prone. Now, Ron was unresponsive. He was in a, you know, semi-comatose state. So I could see Ron there. I could see myself in the chair. And then I looked to my right and there was Ron uh, with me. And he had a huge smile. He had a huge face. That's all I remember seeing a gigantic face that was just, um, you know, radiating joy and happiness as if to say, check this out, William, check this out. This is where I've been. And once again, I was comfortable being there. I was a little startled to see Ron there in such a big form. Uh, and but But it affirmed what I'd known before, which is, you know, I am not dependent on my human body. So I would have many more experiences um, while during my work at Zen Hospice, uh, all of them different. None of them like this one where I was suspended with Ron and communicating with Ron. Uh, but others like the main the main features we see in a shared death experience, you know, very similar to the NDE phenomena, but a different perspective, if you will. I think you if you look at this uh, this afterlife dimension holographically there's just different ways to experience it and and have different points of um viewing vantage points so you know while i was at zen hospice i would see the light change in the room uh often the walls or ceiling would disappear and i'd be looking up into or entering into what we call the heavenly realms which is also you know a term that raymond moody used both in his research on ndes and also in his research on sdes so there's there's so many commonalities. You can have past life reviews. Um, I think that the key 
um, difference between an NDE and an SDE is that the NDE is so relational. In other words, you, if over half of our cases, the, the caregiver, loved one, or healthcare provider will see the dying in their transition, in some state of their transition. And it's very relational. So they're typically in some sort of communication with the dying. Of course, you don't have that in the NDE because it's the dying who's having the direct experience. In the SDE, they're observing uh, or being invited in or participating or accompanying or in some cases guiding uh, the dying in this afterlife realm uh, that is just as defined as the similarly defined as in the NDE, just, you know, heavenly realms, brilliant, hyper alive, blissful feelings, sublime, joy, understand everything, um, you know, increased, like increased knowledge, you know, oneness, unity experiences, all the, you know, coding points that phenomenologically and features that we look for in the NDE, about 80% of them are in the NDE. So they're common points. So your viewers would be quite familiar with the shared death experience phenomena through their knowledge of the NDE phenomena. If someone came to you and asked you what are the most important things that they could do to prepare for the death of a loved one and potentially increase the likelihood of having an SDE, what guidance would you give them? Yes, great question, and one that is a central part of the Shared Crossing Project because that is the most common request uh, we get is, I have a loved one who's dying. I want to know how to prepare for it so I can be a, a you know good, loving caregiver, and I want to have the SDE if possible. So the first thing I suggest, and we have a whole program, so if people are interested, it's a program called the Pathway Program, and you can go to our website and it's sharecrossing.com and just take a look at it. Uh, so, but here's here's some of the key things to keep in mind. What we know about death and dying is when people have unfinished business, emotionally, relationally, uh, those those psychic energetic um, experiences or unworked um, phenomena, you will serve as weights or hooks for the dying, and and they keep the person here in a certain way, and and it's painful. This is the, the you can see people. There's a type of writhing, uh, uh, expression of pain that is what. Um, you know, some people in the field call spiritual pain and, and it's unfinished business. So the first thing I say to people is if you want to have a good death, a graceful death, and you have the, the gift of knowing that either you or a loved one is dying, work things out with them. Do the things that we all know you need to do, which is own your regrets own the harmful experiences you may have had in your life express um a sense of take responsibility uh 
uh, and and ask for forgiveness and and then really kind of wade into that space of forgiving one another. So the sense of working through your unfinished business, then say thank you to the person for the life you've spread you've spent together. So expression of gratitude and appreciation. And when you can get to this place, a whole nother chapter opens up for you in the last part of your life or the, your life with this loved one who's dying. And in this space, you can work with staying connected into the afterlife. And, and, and that's where the protocols that I have developed over the last decade are about how it is when you're transitioning, like, so if the dying person's trans, the dying person's obviously the one who's going to be transitioning. What is it? I teach how it is that that dying person can see the signs in the landscape and remember to call back to their surviving loved ones to bring them back, to bring them with them into the initial stages of the afterlife. Now, Jeff, it's too much to go into the details there, but the one thing I can tell your listeners is if you can work on your consciousness and if you can tell your surviving loved ones or soon to be surviving loved ones that you want them to be ready for your call, that, you, that you're going to try and maintain your consciousness through this death and remember to, um, to, remember to go to them after you know, they've left their human body and into this next afterlife dimension and bring their surviving loved ones with them. If you can have that conversation, that tends to help significantly. You can even talk about signs that you want to show uh, that the dying would show to the surviving loved ones. And that can be all sorts of things you, that, you know, they seem to be able to flicker lights. I mean, the deceased, um, you know, these disincarnate spirits are able to work with energy quite well. So lights and music and radios and, you know, televisions and that type of thing. Um, they seem to, you know, be quite adept at working with. Now, I know this because in our research, um, you know, I've created this spectrum of end of life experiences because while I started out being a, a share death experience researcher, all of a sudden my interviewees would start sharing all these other phenomena that would happen post death. So direct post death communication and visions and visitations. These are all surviving loved ones that would come into my office and say, I know you worked with my dad when he was dying and uh, I didn't have a share death experience with him that I can remember, but you know, a few days after he died, I was shaving and all of a sudden he appeared to me right in my bathroom. And I looked at him, I said, dad. And he looked back and he said, yes, you can see that I'm alive and well. I love you. So we started tracking this phenomena as well. So, um, so this is how, you know, we find that the methods and protocols that we teach um, to people uh, does in about, um, I would say, three quarters of the cases yield some sort of either shared death experience or after death communication. 
And we haven't done the formal, we're doing the formal research on that right now to, with our, yeah, we're doing, we're sending those questionnaires out to our now over 200 research participants to see if we can correlate this and demonstrate it. But I can tell anecdotally, almost everybody who does our trainings, and I do say almost everybody, not everybody, because a lot of them we lose track with, but it will say, oh my God, I had this. Oh my God, I had this. Or, you know, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I was walking on the beach and I walk on this beach every day. And I live in Santa Barbara. So walking on the beach is common here. And I was thinking about my you know, departed husband. And I said, send me a sign. And all of a sudden I saw the biggest display, mammalian display of a whale, the wrong time of season, dolphins jumping up and like putting on a performance for me. And I thought I was like making this up in my mind, but other people walked up and said, have you ever seen this before? And anyway, so there's all these types of communication that I think, you know, in the earlier days as a researcher, I would have been um, ashamed to uh, state publicly, but now I quite brazenly state, look at the data. Look at look. We all can do probability and statistics to data uh, on on these experiences, and this is well beyond probability. There's something happening here. I'm not going to tell you what's happening here, but there's definitely something happening here. And I think we're seeing that with the research on psi and things like that. So I'm not alone in that. Uh, but as as those of us kind of on the forward edge of of looking at these extraordinary experiences and the question about can the deceased uh, communicate with us? I think the data is speaking to us quite clearly. There is something going on here that science, uh, if we're going to listen to the science, is saying worthy of our uh, attention and definitely challenging traditional models of science. You've recently published research on SDEs in medical journals. How has the mainstream scientific and medical community reacted to the stories of SDEs? Great question, Jeff. And I and I can tell you that the 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 journal article, uh, the first one that you're referring to, that was really uh, the watershed article um, in the American Journal of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, came out in December of 2021. It a, received immediate um, positive response from palliative and hospice care uh, doctors and nurses, nurses in particular, who said, thank you for providing the research for experiences that I have seen throughout my, you know, in this one case, this nurse said three decades of hospice care. Um, it got, it, it has got and, and continues to receive affirmation and gratitude from those who know about these experiences and are willing to talk about them. I also realize that, you know, in the scientific uh, medical community, uh, these experiences are still um, unaccounted for in terms of a an overarching uh, philosophy or theoretical model that can explain them. So, since they can't explain them, they don't have a model that can explain. The shared death experience. The response was initially uh, euphoria from a minority but vocal uh, group of experienced hospice and palliative care providers. But still, most most of the mainstream has not said much, and I think that's because they don't see an upside in 
in saying this, and this challenges the medical model. And the medical model, uh, to be really clear, is brain creates consciousness at the moment of death with a dead brain. Consciousness ceases to exist. There can be nothing more. These experiences like the NDE um, call into question the validity of that of that model because clearly there's these experiences that are happening um, in the case of the NDE in persons who are deemed dead. In the case of the SDE, uh, the shared death experiencer, a sound in mind and body, is having a relationship and communication with someone recently deceased. This can't happen. So we're at the front edge here. I do think that we're seeing changes. I mean, I can tell you uh, hospice uh, hospices are reaching out to me and my organization for more information, more training, uh, because they, you know, my point about this is this is a healthcare imperative that we let people know that these experiences happen and that we cannot discount them, dismiss them, or disparage them as some people in our research study have said that they had this study, they had this experience in a hospital and a healthcare provider uh, dismissed the experience and said, you're under a lot, great deal of stress. You know, why don't you, uh, you know, have a glass of water and, and get your wits back, uh, which is quite demeaning to someone who's just had one of the most profound uh, spiritual experiences of their life and now realizes that their departing loved one not only is alive and well somewhere, but wants a relationship with them. Wow. So, why do you think science still clings to the premise that the brain creates consciousness? I mean, I, I don't know. I think it's just so rooted in scientific materialism that it wants to see this world as, as you know, a material reality that creates consciousness rather than the reverse, which is it's consciousness that creates the material world. I, I think science feels it's got more control when it's a material world that creates consciousness than when it's uh, a consciousness that creates a material world. Uh, if that's the case, then they got to get into consciousness. And that just basically threatens their, their whole endeavor because a lot of scientists state, we're going to figure this out. We're going to figure this out, that everything is cause and effect in the material world. It's a mechanistic world we live in. And, and they, they want to believe that. And they've staked their whole career on it. So I, I don't understand it. I see a lot. I mean, I will say there are so many wonderful, open-hearted, brilliant scientists who are at least stating this model cannot account for so much of the human experience and we need to take responsibility for that. We need to acknowledge this model is insufficient, insufficient. That's the first step. When you realize the model you have is insufficient, you don't need to jump into a whole nother model um, you know, of consciousness as the driver of the universe. Although I think that's probably the most likely one that we go towards. Um, and not that we even understand consciousness really, but at least we can gaze at that mystery 
and have a lot more um, honesty and integrity when we say the current model we have doesn't account for these experiences. And yet this other model that floats out here that consciousness is the creator of, of at least our reality, our material human reality seems to be more viable and explainable. Um, so, so yeah, I can't, yeah, there's, that's my response. Yeah. Yeah. What advice would you give to people who are grieving over a loss of a loved one? That's such a, um, a thoughtful question. And I'll tell you why it is so thoughtful is because while I can get very excited about the shared death experiences and what it says about the human experience, you know, first and foremost, I'm a psychotherapist who specializes in grief and bereavement around end of life, death and dying. And my primary reason for doing the research that I do is because um, the benefits to people who uh, have these shared crossing experiences, the SDE and other experiences at the end of life, is that they know their, live, their loved one is alive and well. And that, the, and that they'll be reunited. We see that in 89% of our cases, they, they express that they know, not just think, they know they'll be reunited with their loved one again. Their fear of death greatly diminishes, uh, well over 50%. And we're doing, like I said, a new survey on that because we think it's higher. Um, their grief and bereavement is significantly different. It's, it's, it's better in a certain way. Doesn't mean they don't grieve the loss of their loved one if you have one of these shared crossing experiences. What it means is they hold the loss in a, in a deeper understanding or context that sounds something like, it's so painful for me to lose, to have, to have my you know, significant other die and be gone from my life. And yet I know I'll see them again. And yet, so that becomes how they process and they begin um, a type of, um, well, there's a whole therapeutic grief and bereavement modality, which I am a um, supporter of and practitioner in. It's called Continuing Bonds. And these end-of-life experiences, shared crossings, shared death experiences, after-death communication, visions, visitations, synchronicities, all of these experiences serve as uh, communication between the dying and uh, between the dead and the surviving loved one. And so when you start working with that phenomena, it gives an opportunity for the bereaved to craft a new relationship based on these experiences and others. And so the relationship continues, it evolves, it, it, it gets recrafted in a certain way. And so for those who uh, are suffering from a loss, um, I encourage them to look for these signs. I encourage them to read the literature on that. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful literature out there about that's scientific, you know, as well. Uh, but there's also good general public stuff that speaks to these experiences. I mean, there's not just my book, you know, At Heaven's Door, there's wonderful um, after death communication books. There's Hello from Heaven from Bill Guggenheim. That's a classic from the 70s. He's got, you know, literally hundreds of cases from parents and from, uh, you know, spouses who have lost loved ones. And it supports this notion that while our loved ones are no longer in human form, they are somewhere else and there's a relationship to be had. So I do tell people that, you know, death and death of a loved one is 
always going to be heartbreaking. And in some cases, you don't ever really get over. I don't like that language. You get over the loss of a loved one. I like the language that you have lost a loved one. It's painful. And now the invitation is, how can you, if you so desire, only if you so desire, how can you maintain a relationship of integrity uh, that is not wishful thinking, that is based in the phenomena that you're experiencing to um, recreate, if you will, or evolve a meaningful relationship with any of your departed loved ones? Well, I'm glad you mentioned your book because I have to switch gears with you. It's titled At Heaven's Door, What Shared Journeys to the Afterlife Teach About Dying Well and Living Better. Do we find that on your website, on Amazon, or both? Uh, it's uh, my publisher is Simon and Schuster, so I have a you know wonderful publisher. They're everywhere, so you know Amazon's great. I, you know, one thing I will uh, suggest to your local readers, if they can go to a local bookstore, um, request it there. It's always wonderful to support our our local our local book purveyors. They, they provide a culture for us that we don't want to lose. You know that the ability to go into a bookstore and peruse and look what's out there so yeah you can get it pretty much anywhere all right you can go to my website too you know, if you go to my website you can get on a mailing list if you're interested in that and get more information about other you know offerings we have my me and my team have on shared crossings and things like that what are you working on that you want us to know about well there's you know the research right now is focused on uh, a survey uh, a quite in-depth survey of of people uh, we have a control group, but the people we're most interested in are our past uh, workshop participants, share crossing workshop participants, and also those in our interview. And the questions we're looking for are, well, this is very interesting when you hear this, there is this force, I've refer referred to it already, called the conductor. There seems to be a benevolent force in the SDE that is managing this relationship or not, not relationship well the relationship too but the relationship um between the dying person and their transition into the afterlife so the relationship is between the conductor and the dying and but there's also there's some sort of relationship between the conductor and the shared death experiencer uh and, and we're trying to figure out all about these relationships and the role of the conductor, because if we can figure out more about this, I have this um, hope, aspiration that we as caregiver loved ones can attune to the conductor who's manifesting this transition and, and be of service to the conductor to see, see if we can play roles to support a more graceful, loving end of life and transition for our, our loved ones. It's a, it's just a wonderful um endeavor, if you will. So we're trying to figure out more about the conductor. And then we're also interested in um, pets. People have SDEs with pets. Mm -hmm. And so we're studying pets. Uh, and, and and not so much studying pets, but we're studying these cases where people will talk about uh, an SDE with a pet. So that's exciting. That's dogs and cats and horses, a lot of horses, birds, it's really something when you see somebody have an SDE and they see their, uh, you know, and I'm thinking of a case with a woman in New Zealand whose husband was dying and all of a sudden she saw, sees her husband, you know, walking, you know, kind of going out of her, the room where he's dying down 
a pasture, and all of a sudden she sees their dog, who's predeceased, greet him there. Well, that's spectacular. So you have those, and then you also have SDEs when a pet's dying, and you go into the afterlife with the pet, um, and that's pretty spectacular. So we're 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 interested in that. And then other things we're interested in are just the types of relationships. Like, is there any difference in the relationship between spouses and that SDE phenomena? And, uh, you know, when you lose a child or lose a parent. So all of that we're, we're interested in right now. And then the other thing I'll say, Jeff, is that if your viewers are interested, we we used to be more of a you know brick and mortar um, provider of, of services. We still are. Uh, with COVID, we 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 stopped doing our in-person programs, but this fall we're starting those up again. Those are in Santa Barbara. Our but our flagship program, the program that people are most interested in, is the Pathway program, and that's the program where we essentially teach people how to have the shared death experience and other shared crossing experiences. And that's a really a three-step program, which starts with normalizing these experiences, really letting people know that these experiences happen and we we teach them what these experiences are, what to expect when they happen. And then we do this what this preparation for a conscious, connected, and loving end-of-life experience, which is really addressing the unfinished business that I've already referred to. A lot of you know spiritual exercises, work with forgiveness, compassion, life reviews, uh, and really stepping into uh, joining our loved ones in acknowledging and accepting uh, uh, as difficult as it is that either one of the two, and if you're working with partners, you don't have to work in partners, but a lot of people do, uh, that everyone you know and love is going to die. So it's good to get into relationships so you're not surprised by that. So that's kind of that preparation, which is a bit intense, but people really appreciate it because they feel like they don't have to be in denial anymore about the fact that, gosh, they know they're going to die and they know their loved ones are going to die. So let's talk honestly about it. So we do all that. We get into preparation with that. And the last part of the training is uh, teaching the share crossing protocols, which is how you stay connected with a loved one as they're dying across the threshold and how you reach back if you're the dying to connect with your surviving loved ones. And we teach receptivity on the part of the surviving loved ones. How do you attune so that you can get those calls? So that's a rather um, in-depth training as well, but you can do it all in a weekend and we're doing it online. And so for people who are interested, we have a workshop, I believe coming up in November and then that's online. And then in-person would be in Santa Barbara in October. Um, so yeah, there's those programs. And then the last one I'll say for those are mental health practitioners or end of life practitioners or spiritual care providers, uh, starting a program for uh, a consultation group so that we can work together uh, with people who work in, in the various capacities of end of life uh, to teach them the shared crossing uh, paradigm, if you will, how you welcome these experiences, how you integrate them, how you work with clients and families. Uh, it's very exciting. And that'll be an international group because people have expressed interest uh, from all over the world. If people want to reach out to you and ask you questions, are you open to that? Yeah, definitely. You can go uh, reach out to info at sharedcrossing.com, info at sharedcrossing.com. We have a team here that um, that does receive those. And, um, and when they're directly relevant to me, they come right to me. One other thing here, Jeff, if you've had an experience, any kind of shared crossing experience, we have ongoing research right now. And uh, you can 
reach out to us. In fact, we're going to do another round of research. So this is a good time to submit a story uh, if you've had one. Uh, once again, that goes to uh, info at sharedcrossing.com. And then, you know, someone on our research team will likely reach out to you. You can also submit a story directly. That's the quickest way to get to us is to go to our contact page and you'll see, you know, submit your story. And then our research team will get to you sooner. We do have interns as well that are working with us right now. So if you want to be an intern and work on our research side of things, um, you can send that to info at sharedcrossing.com too. And you can, um, you know, see if we can place you in our intern program because we have lots of wonderful people working with us in a variety of way. Researchers, you know, coders, people doing all sorts of listening in on interviews. Uh, it's all great. So a lot going on. And uh, and I know your audience would, would be uh, interested in this. William, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? Well, the positive message is that you know, from what we know about death and dying and our research and around the world, the other researchers that work as closely as I do with this, is that death is not to be feared, that, that death is a journey into a benevolent afterlife that is far more joyous and connected, there's a sense of belonging that can deliver to us perhaps the deepest, most meaningful experience of us as eternal beings. And so I can say, you know, from, you know, with, with my sincerest, most integrous expression around what I know about death and dying is that death is a beautiful, mysterious, marvelous event. And we should get into relationship so that we can give each other good deaths and maintain connection through this event and see each other all again. William, thank you for that message. And thank you again for being my guest. I appreciate you and I wish you success in all your work and research. Thanks, Jeff. Pleasure to be here with you. I really appreciate this interview. All right. Have a great rest of your day.